My name is Galoran Turan and I'm with the Global CCS Institute. Today's program will include two panel discussions with policy experts and industry leaders and the release of a co-authored net zero report between the Global CCS Institute and Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. This event will be recorded, so if you miss parts of it or you would like to share the video, you'll be able to find it on our website at globalccsinstitute.com. Without further ado, I'd like to pass the microphone over to Mr. Brad Page, the CEO of the Global CCS Institute, who will be facilitating the kickoff discussion. Over to you, Brad. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to this webinar. As Galoran just mentioned, I'm Brad Page. I'm the CEO of the Global CCS Institute, and it's my very great pleasure and honour to open the proceedings today. Now, Climate Week may not be happening as we would normally expect, but there cannot be a more significant moment for us to be talking about the urgency of taking climate action. With governments around the world needing to stimulate their economies, now is the opportunity to change the course that we're on and set sail for a better, sustainable world. We truly need all abatement and adaptation options to be pursued vigorously and to move rapidly to a pathway that delivers net zero emissions around mid-century. We also know that carbon dioxide removal is going to be required and the carbon capture, use and storage will be a central technology in delivering that. But CCUS offers much, much more than just carbon dioxide removal. Central to today's webinar is the launch of a report authored jointly by staff of the Columbia Centre on Global Energy Policy and staff members of the Global CCS Institute. And on behalf of the Institute, I'd like to thank Jason Bordoff and his team, and especially Julio Friedman, for their wonderful cooperation in this endeavour. Net zero and geospheric return actions today for 2030 and beyond is the result of a suggestion, actually probably really a challenge from Lord Nicholas Stern at a private breakfast that we held earlier this year at Davos, just before the coronavirus set in and stopped all of us traveling. Nick challenged Jason and me to have our organizations develop and publish a research paper that made the case for why CCS is essential for achieving net zero emissions. Eight months later, here we are. Challenge accepted, Nick, and mission accomplished. <laughs> it's now my pleasure to introduce to you our opening speakers to set the scene for the presentation of the report and the discussions that will follow this morning. And I want to thank all of our esteemed speakers who've found the time today in various time zones around the world to join us and contribute to this really important topic. First, I'd like to introduce Jason Bordoff. Jason is a professor of professional practice at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and serves as the founding director of CEPA's Center on Global Energy Policy. Undoubtedly, Jason is one of the world's top energy policy experts. His research and policy interests lie at the intersection of economics, energy, environment, and national security. His CV is long and enormously impressive, including as a senior member of the Obama administration between 2009 and 2013, where he was special assistant to the president and senior director on the staff of the National Security Council. Jason has regularly sought out for expert opinion and advice on a wide variety of energy and environment policy issues and is recognized globally 
for his contribution to advanced analysis and thinking in these areas. Professor Lord Nicholas Stern really requires no introduction. Nick came to global public prominence with his seminal Stern review of the economics of climate change in 2006, which changed the conversation on addressing climate change. He has been at the pinnacle of that conversation ever since. Since the end of 2007, Nick has been a crossbench here at the House of Lords. And he is, of course, the IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government at the London School of Economics and Political Sciences. He's also Director of the India Observatory, the Chairman of the Grantham Institute on Climate Change and the Environment, and the Chairman of the ESRC, Centre for Climate Change, Economics and Policy. Nick holds many prestigious <clears throat> honours and awards, and we're pleased to say that he is also an international advisor to the Global CCS Institute. Gentlemen, thank you both for making time to be with us today and to contribute to this important conversation. Nick, can I invite you to make your comments and for Jason to follow on from you to get us underway today? Thank you. Thank you very much, Brad, and uh, congratulations to um, Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute and the Columbia Centre for Global Energy Policy for rising so uh, magnificently. Let me call it a request rather than a challenge or a suggestion. And uh, it's an extremely important report and we're going to be hearing about it uh, very shortly. And Brad, I was led to reflect not only back to um, uh, Davos this year, where the movement towards sustainability right across the private sector is quite remarkable. And uh, we've seen in the months since then, even though there have been months of lockdown, just how uh, strongly that commitment of the private sector to net zero is moving. And we've been seeing many big firms saying, we're not only going to get to net zero, say by 2040, like Google and Microsoft and so on, and uh, even BP by, by 2050, we're seeing some of those firms saying we're going to correct for the emissions that we have made in the past. So the private sector demand side for um, uh, negative emissions uh, has gone up quite extraordinary just in this year. But if we look back for the more than a decade Brad, that I've been associated with Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute, we've seen how the discussion has moved in that decade. We knew um, when the GCSI was founded, uh, what, 11 years ago now, that uh, carbon capture use storage had to be a central part of all this. But we've learned much more about climate. We have been slow as a world in reducing our emissions. And those two things have led us to see now, still more than we did over a decade ago, the urgency of what we have to do. And in the last two or three years, the language has moved quite rightly to net zero. Net zero, we want to stabilize temperature, basically we've got to stabilize the long-lived greenhouse gases. And that means essentially uh, net zero. So stabilization means net zero, and the earlier you stabilize, the lower the temperature at which you stabilize. And we've learned that we better be stabilizing at 1.5, that two is actually rather a nasty place uh, to be. And we've even learned that one isn't such a pleasant place to be 
you know, we look around the world and we see not only uh, extreme fires on the west coast of the United States, but we see the extreme fires in the Arctic Circle and in Siberia. I mean, the effects are quite remarkable. And of course, uh, vicious storms uh, appearing uh, around uh, the world and becoming more intense. So we've learned. We've learned that we have to act. We've learned about net, net zero. The urgency has become uh, still greater. And we've seen technological advance, which um, are people like Jason and Julio, and you yourself, Brad, and your people are fully on top of, which are making a really, really big difference. So that sense of urgency has just become still more intense over the years. And the good news, I think, is that people are starting to see that. And as I remarked just now, the private sector is starting to see it. They know that the future in which they work, in which they produce, which they employ, is under real risk, and they know that their customers and their uh, potential employees and their potential shareholders all expect them to go net zero. Because if they don't, uh, they won't get good people. We, Jason, myself, work at universities. Our people are not saying we won't work for tobacco companies or people who make uh, arms. They've got a positive list now. They say we will work for people who are doing the right things. So I think firm after firm is finding that not only it's the right thing to do, it's the sensible thing to do from the point of view of their future as a profitable firm. We've learned also that this can be a growth story. And let me just give one example, but then I better stop from my own country, the UK. The UK, as you all know, gets some things right and some things wrong. And the list in the latter category is not short. But the what we've done in the UK, I, I won't say it was brilliantly foreseen, but we've managed to run down our North Sea oil and gas just at the time where much of oil and gas is moving behind us as a source of energy. Not yet, of course, that has to play itself through, but it's moving behind us. So we have emerged into this new era with holes in the ground in the North Sea, which can play a major role in carbon capture and storage. And we have some skills around the oil and gas uh, sector, which are there in Aberdeen, northeast UK. And so you're going to see very soon a speech by the UK Prime Minister with the strategy for going net zero for the UK, sometime in the next six weeks or so, in which that opportunity is presented as a great, rightly so, as a great growth opportunity in this special period of transition for the UK. To deliver all this, we need clarity on policy. In particular, we need a good, strong carbon price, and I believe that the argument is moving in that direction. We need good sources of finance. I'm pushing for a national investment bank in the UK. You have to share risks, because there are risks here. You have to share risks with the private sector, and you have to have regulatory structures, which allows you to build the kind of facilities, pipelines, and so on that you're going to uh, need. So government policy is absolutely crucial. But we've learned a lot about that, too. And the Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute has been very strong in that. And indeed, as its name would suggest, the Centre for Global Energy Policy has as well. So this has been a tremendous collaboration. There's much more to do. Um, but congratulations on uh, delivering uh, this. It is actually a gestation period of roughly nine months, which is uh, all very good and anthropomorphic. So 
thank you very much for uh, all your work and we look forward to hearing about this very special report. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Um, thank you very much for your comments. And uh, Jason, let me bring you to the microphone now and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Brad. Well, thanks to you and your team for pulling this great event together. And want to thank my colleague, Julio Friedman, uh, for his leadership and the Center on Global Energy Policy building such an excellent program focused on all so many aspects of carbon management, including carbon uh, capture and storage and, and the report we're talking about today. And just to be with many other friends, um, friends on this call, Sir Alex Halliday, uh, a colleague at, at Columbia. We've not only risen to the challenge uh, that Lord Stern put out in Davos, but, but much more broadly on the issue of climate change, and not only with what we're doing at the Center on Global Energy Policy, but uh, with the uh, approval by Columbia's trustees a few months ago to build the first new school at Columbia in 25 years, a climate school, and that's consuming a lot of our time, and this topic will be a major focus. It's already a major focus of researchers uh, throughout the university. Uh, delighted to be here with Chairman Murkowski, who's joining soon, and heroes like Lord Stern and Mary Nichols and friends like Leila Benelli. So good to be with everyone this morning. Uh, I think Lord Stern covered it very well. We need to be moving uh, much, much faster than we are to take targets like one and a half or two degrees warming seriously. And even those targets we know now are going to mean impacts that, uh, that, that, that are unpleasant and difficult and painful because uh, we're already seeing those today from wildfires uh, across California with for, uh, for forests that are been turned into a tinderbox by how dry they are to uh, stronger and more intense hurricanes in the Gulf, uh, floods from China to Pakistan and elsewhere around the world. We see weather events becoming more frequent and more severe around the world. And we know that we're not on track. We're not anywhere close to being on track to take targets like uh, those in the Paris Agreement seriously. Um, we talk, I, I wrote a piece recently in Foreign Policy Magazine where I write uh, every other week uh, about the um, important focus on stopping new coal plants around the world and, and financing coal plants. But even if we never build another new coal plant, if we just run the existing fleet of coal plants around the world to the end of their normal economic life, we blow through our climate goals. Uh, and that's just in, in, in the power sector. Of course, why we're talking about this report and why CCS is so important is not only potentially for parts of, of the power sector that uh, can't uh, be entirely met with intermittent renewables, but heavy industry and how we talk about cement and steel and how we talk about high temperature process heat um, and, and uh, other hard to abate sectors from aviation to shipping to heavy duty freight and potentially buildings. We, we sort of need it all. And in addition to this report, which I'm very proud of, we released a report last week, uh, Energizing America, which was a roadmap, Julio was a co-author on that too, was a roadmap for how to dramatically scale up clean energy R&D in the US. Uh, and that and, and, and really shows the broad range of technologies that will be needed in order to get anywhere close to on track with the Paris climate goals. You know, the history of energy, we talk a lot about the energy transition. The history of energy is not one of transitions, it's one of additions. So if you look at these charts from zero to 100%, you'll see these great transitions over time from wood to coal and coal to oil and oil to gas and increasingly to zero carbon energy, although it's still a small share of the total. Um, but that's as a percent of the total. What, what, the, what the atmosphere cares about is tons of CO2 and total energy used. And when you look at the chart that way, we've never used less of anything. We've just added to the stack 
to meet rising energy demand globally with new and hopefully increasingly cleaner forms of energy. But as Lord Stern said, uh, we need net zero. And that means not only meeting the incremental growth in energy demand with zero carbon sources, that alone is challenging enough, and, and, and we're not there yet. Uh, but we need to take the 80% of the energy mix that comes from hydrocarbons and 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 bring that to, to net zero. It's a staggering challenge. Uh, and again, we're going to need all, all, all hands on deck in order to do it. The International Energy Agency we hosted a couple of weeks ago for their new energy technology perspectives report, which is excellent. Uh, and in that report, they you know have different scenarios. One is net zero by 2050. And according to the IEA, in that scenario, half of the cumulative emission reductions between now and 2050 come from technologies that are not yet commercially available. So we need a lot of innovation and a lot of technology to help us get there. And thinking about how to uh, deploy CCS is going to be part of it. Uh, it is only part of it. And, and we should note that there are a lot of other things that you would do and a lot of things that may be cheaper to do. And so um, there is, as you know, concern about uh, whether whether a focus on CCS detracts from a focus on other zero carbon technologies, on renewable energy, and on trying to dramatically reduce uh, hydrocarbon use around the world. And it can't, and it shouldn't, and we need strong policy to make that happen. But as part of a broad solution, again, we're gonna need all technology tools uh, to be part of that, I think, uh, to move at the pace we need to move. And that's gonna mean we got a lot of investment to make, and that's what this report is about. Uh, Julio likes to say, <laughs> when you think about the scale of decarbonization and the challenge, Every week needs to be infrastructure week. Net zero is gonna require construction and retrofit of CO2 pipelines and hydrogen pipelines and ports and transmission lines. And that is a key point of the report today that new infrastructure is needed for the geospheric return uh, uh, and that, uh, of CO2 and that much of that must be deployed quickly over the next 10 years. The 2020s needs to be the climate decade. So um, from where we are, the world needs to drop its emissions by 50% by 2030 to hit the one and a half degree target. And uh, just building new zero carbon energy supplies won't be sufficient. We're gonna need to put carbon back into the earth as well as a way to rapidly and cost effectively reduce emissions from facilities, Asian coal, heavy industry, and, and some of the things I mentioned before. So the report makes the case for policies that support project finance, which has worked well for solar and offshore wind. It can do the same here. Many kinds of policies uh, that do that, that job well, from tax incentives to regulation to carbon pricing, which Lord Stern meant, revenue enhancements. Um, and as we pivot to 100% clean energy, uh, want to apply some of those policies to CCS as well. And the report also points out a few specific and facilitating policy actions that are pretty easy, like amendment of the London Convention or an innovation policy. So really uh, pleased with this report today, and, and thanks, Brad, to you and your colleagues for pulling us together to talk about it and bringing such a distinguished group of people to share their perspectives on where we need to move moving forward. I'll turn it back to you. Thank you. Jason, thank you very much for uh, those comments, and, uh, and I just cannot imagine uh, two better people to have alongside us here to get proceedings underway. So to both of you, on behalf of the audience and all the other speakers, thank you so much for your time and for your support of the Institute. We look forward to continuing to work with both of you. And uh, Jason, certainly it's been a, a delight to, uh, to work with Columbia and we hope to continue to do that. So thanks again for this opening. I think I should turn it over to Galoran so that we can get going with learning a whole lot more about this exciting new report. Thank you again. 
Thank you very much for this very insightful discussion. So um, in, in respect of our agreed um, agenda, may I turn over to um, Mr. Julio Friedman and Mr. Alexa Pantis to present the findings of the report, please. Uh, thank you, and it's uh, fun and timely to do. Uh, we are uh, in terrible straits, um, and the core arithmetic of net zero is harsh and unforgiving. Uh, more than anything else, we are really focused here on the numeracy of climate change, and we're failing. Uh, this is not something which I take cavalierly. Uh, this is, in fact, uh, a, from very close to my home in California, uh, and this is from very close to Alex's home uh, in Australia. Uh, we are living the damages, and because we're living the damages, we simply need to make speed and uh, time is the fundamental issue here. It's all, it's about time. Uh, we know how far behind we are. This is a succession, a succession of reports from the UN Environmental Program. And basically for a 2030 target to hit one and a half degrees, we have to drop about 30 gigatons. We have to drop half of global emissions, way beyond current policy scenarios. Even for two degrees, by the end of this decade, we have to drop 15 gigatons. Uh, which is crazy in terms of the volume. It's simply the math. The other thing we know is that there's parts that are just hard to get. The green bar, hard to reduce emissions, are things like aviation, shipping, heavy industry, uh, uh, agriculture, and we just don't have solutions for those. Like Jason was saying, half of our solutions are not yet fielded at scale. Uh, this requires, by the way, that we must also unemit enormous volumes through negative emissions removal, and again, very, very quickly. And the core arithmetic of net zero is very clarifying, and I've been happy and salutary to see two years now that net zero is the language we're speaking, because it applies to all sectors and applies to all approaches. And it means we need all sectors, and it means we need all approaches to hit net zero. There's really only one way to stabilize. There's really only one way to stabilize, net zero everywhere. If we don't hit net zero everywhere, any emissions we add to the atmosphere stay in the atmosphere, and every year of delay makes the problem work. And as I said before, we have not fielded solutions to about half the portfolio yet. That's the finding from the IEA and their energy technology perspective just last week. To achieve net zero, any CO2 emissions must be balanced by CO2 removals. Simple arithmetic. As I said in the last slide, any residual emissions must be balanced by removal. It's just what needs to be done. And it's likely that we need about 10 billion tons a year of removal by 2050 to hit that balance. If we delay or fail to do that, the arithmetic asks for more CO2 removal. So all of those other scenarios from the International Energy Agency and the IPCC and the UN, all, all of those uh, assume success cases. If we fail at any of that, we are digging a deeper hole and we need to do more. This is the core of the report. Any carbon taken from the earth must be returned to the earth. That's also core arithmetic. Any carbon that is taken from the ground and put into the air and oceans must be returned to the geosphere. Part of the reason why is because natural systems are in balance and we have to return them to balance. Uh, we have pushed them out of balance over the time, and we will want to and must put carbon back into trees and soils. That's really good. We also know that the rate at which that happens is limited. The capacity is limited. And 
we have simply put two trillion tons into the air and oceans. We have to put that somewhere else. It won't fit in the biosphere. On top of that, in natural systems, the risk of biosphere returning and releasing CO2 is getting worse every year, as we've seen from these horrible fires. So again, the question is, what do you do? And what you do is geospheric return. Um, one last point to set up, power sector is not enough. By 2030, half of what we need to do is in the power sector, the half is in everything else. And for 2050, about 40% is in power sector and cars, 60% is in everything else. So we need solutions that work in the everything else part of the scenario. In this context, geospheric return, carbon capture and storage is the Swiss army knife of decarbonization. Uh, in the power sector, in heavy industry, to make zero carbon hydrogen today and to remove CO2 from the air and oceans, it's one of the best ways to go about doing this. And unlike other things we've discussed, these technologies exist and are fielded today. That gives us an opportunity to move quickly on existing infrastructure. And that is another important conclusion of the report. We have to move quickly on existing infrastructure. We need to take actions today for 2030. Geospheric return is at least as big as any other option. It is as big as wind. It is as big as nuclear. It is big as solar PV. It is as big as building efficiency. And it simply is the cheapest way to do this in a bunch of markets. If we don't have that option, we simply won't make the math work out. So what have we got today? We have 10 nations that have already commercially operating CCS facilities. We have 10 nations that have committed to CCS and their nationally determined contributions. We have 21 operating facilities worldwide and also a new one announced uh, in the Langskip project in Norway. And I hope True to Sunset talks about that. Today, we're capturing 40 million tons a year of CO2. We've captured almost 300 million tons of CO2 cumulatively across all sectors, everything from biorefineries and ethanol to the power sector, to hydrogen production, to steel. Um, the science is well established. The technology is well established and commercial today. I'm going to talk very briefly about three benefits before handing over to Alex. The first is that this saves time. Uh, existing capital stock takes a long time to roll over. And if you look just at chemical facilities around the world, this is responsible for between 3 and 5% of global emissions. Just that chemical facility stock is not going to roll over for 20 years. If we want to get the existing emissions, we don't have to wait. We can go after the existing assets today and do so in using existing infrastructure at reduced cost. The same thing is true for steel, only it's worse. Here, these are going to last another 30 years around the world. And again, in every geography, there are opportunities where we can start today. Geospheric return also saves money. It's cheaper than a lot of other decarbonization options. This recent study from Goldman Sachs makes a marginal abatement curve for everything for the entire global economy. The dark blue bars are basically conservation and replacement of fossil fuels. So they are things like efficiency on this end or things like solar and nuclear plants replacing existing fossil plants today. The light blue bars are where you would apply CCS because it's cheaper. It just would save money compared to other options. The light green bars 
are natural solutions for managed ecosystems that would pull down carbon dioxide. That's cheaper in a bunch of markets, and we definitely need a lot of that. We need probably three to five gigatons of that. For the super expensive and hard stuff, we're going to use geospheric return. Things like bioenergy with CCS or direct air capture, which again are already cheaper than the alternatives we have today. Here's where I'm going to turn over to our co-author, Alex Zapantis. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Julio. Thanks for that uh, excellent introduction, uh, first half of the presentation. So this is a very interesting slide. You know, if the objective is, is achieving net zero emissions at the least overall cost to society, then decision making should be guided by the cost of abatement options. This chart shows the estimated carbon dioxide abatement costs of various existing policies in the United States of America. The lighter yellow band is an estimate of the abatement cost from a 1 million tonne per annum direct air capture plant. The darker yellow band is the range of abatement costs taken from a recent National Petroleum Council report for the application of carbon capture and storage to industrial facilities in the United States of America. It's clear that CCS is actually very competitive on a cost of abatement basis and it's positively cheap compared to some existing policies. For example, the most expensive CCS options on industry or power have an associated abatement cost, according to the NPC report, of $120 a tonne or less. This compares to around $270 per tonne for wind energy subsidies, about $320 a tonne for cafe standards, uh, and over $2,000 a tonne for solar photovoltaic subsidies. To be clear, we're not suggesting that carbon capture and storage can do it all. All of these policies and others are going to be absolutely necessary to take us to net zero. But what we are identifying is a low cost abatement option that can deliver hundreds of millions of tonnes of abatement in an industrialised uh, economy that policy has simply not yet taken full advantage of. And that low cost option, of course, is carbon capture and storage. So underinvestment in CCS is a direct consequence of the market generally not providing sufficient financial reward for CCS investments. Policy can correct this market failure by focusing on three areas, increasing revenue for CCS projects, reducing the cost of CCS investments, and reducing the risk associated with those investments. Firstly, permanently storing carbon dioxide instead of emitting it must create value for the investor. There must be a bankable long-term value on carbon dioxide. That value could be created through a financial reward for carbon dioxide storage, such as the 45Q tax credit in the USA, uh, the avoidance of a tax, a uh, carbon tax, for example, such as, uh, as, as is in place in Norway, or through regulation that effectively requires carbon capture and storage, such as emission portfolio standards in Saskatchewan. Secondly, policy can reduce the cost of investment. The most obvious example, of course, is the provision of capital or operational grants. However, there are many other options. For example, governments can reduce the cost of capital by offering concessional finance. That alone can reduce the cost of servicing debt by tens of millions of dollars per year for a CCS facility owner, making investment far easier. Government can also support storage site appraisal. Storage site appraisal, that's geological storage site appraisal for carbon dioxide, is very similar to exploration for oil or gas. It's at-risk capital except without the exception of a, uh, without the expectation, sorry, of a return on investment. There is clearly a role for government in supporting the collection and analysis of necessary geological data to identify resources which may then be utilized by carbon capture and storage project developers. Finally, government can reduce the risks that private sector investors can't mitigate. 
For example, project developers need clear and predictable regulations so they know how to secure access rights to pore space for the storage of carbon dioxide. And they need to understand what their compliance obligations are going to be during the operation of those storage uh, activities. They also require a framework for managing the long-term liability associated with carbon dioxide which is being geologically stored. And that framework must be commercially acceptable so that they can take on that risk. Government can also facilitate the establishment of carbon capture and storage hubs, which reduces cost and risk significantly. And I'll talk about that on the next slide, please, Julio. So what's a CCS hub? Well, a CCS hub is simply a carbon dioxide transport network that connects multiple carbon dioxide sources to geological storage operators. CCS hubs bring two major benefits. Firstly, they significantly reduce the cost per tonne of carbon dioxide transport and storage through economies of scale. And secondly, they reduce counterparty or cross-chain risk through the establishment of industrial CCS ecosystems with multiple participants, all contributing to the commercial resilience of the overall CCS network. This is essential infrastructure to support the return of carbon dioxide to the geosphere necessary to achieve net zero. It is just as important as new electricity transmission lines to connect new renewable generation capacity to the grid. It's just as important as electric vehicle charging stations. It's just as important as hydrogen storage and distribution networks. All of these important infrastructure assets and more will be required uh, to achieve net zero by the middle of this century. Now, as Julio I like to say, every week between now and 2030 needs to be infrastructure week. I should say that again, every week, literally every week, between now and 2030 needs to be infrastructure week. Investment in this essential infrastructure, be power lines, hydrogen refueling stations, or CCS hubs, requires facilitation and support from government. It's an enabler of the investment which is essential to achieve net zero. So Julio began this presentation with a very simple but unavoidable truth. Stabilizing the global climate requires net zero emissions. And net zero emissions requires that carbon taken from the geosphere is returned to the geosphere. Carbon capture and storage, along with carbon mineralization, provides the means to achieve that through the capture of carbon dioxide at its point of production or directly from the atmosphere, followed by permanent geological storage. These technologies, which are operating right now, can transform high emission industries into net zero aligned industries. However, policy support is essential to accelerate this process. It's clear that success will be built on a strategy that starts delivering essential infrastructure now, enables project finance, cultivates new net zero emission industry ecosystems, and removes legal and commercial barriers. We know how to do this. It's been done many times before around the world in other industries such as road, rail, power generation and transmission, and telecommunications. It's about time we did it for CCS to stable the global climate. Thank you. Julio and Alex, thank you so very much for this presentation. And I'm very pleased to say that Senator Mukowski has joined us. And may I turn over to Mr. Jason Bordoff to introduce the Senator, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, we're, um, I know how busy Chairman Murkowski's schedule is, so I'll just be very brief, but it really is a pleasure to introduce Senator Lisa Murkowski, who, as you all know, chairs the Energy and Natural Resources Committee and is one of the most knowledgeable and influential members of Congress on energy issues. I've had the privilege to testify before her and her committee several times, and um, I'll share two observations based on those experiences. 
First, she really, really, really loves the state of Alaska. And having spent two weeks with my family making our way through the Inside Passage to towns like Wrangell and Ketchikan last year, I can see why it's a magical part of the country. And second, she really values data and expertise and bipartisanship. And I think we need more of all of those things in our political discourse and in our public life and in our public policy these days. So I will just say I've always respected the way she's tried to work across the aisle and run her hearings, which is not always the norm on Capitol Hill, in a respectful and, and bipartisan way to examine the particular issue at hand, genuinely seek to understand different perspectives, including those with which she may disagree. So Chairman Murkowski, it really is a privilege to welcome you to the Center on Global Energy Policy today to provide a few keynote remarks about the topic at hand of net zero infrastructure and returning carbon to the earth. Thanks for making time this morning. Jason, thank you for the introduction and thank you for the observation about uh, our committee and, and the operation and functions. I have, have long maintained that when it comes to, to those, those energy resources that, that power us all, uh, the innovation that is at play, uh, more that we know we can do in this space, it's, it, is, it should be uh, areas where we get excited about the opportunities and the potential rather than being driven by, uh, by politics uh, of, of the moment. It is, it's indeed a pleasure to serve. So thank you for the opportunity to say a few um, just updated remarks in terms of where we are in the Senate uh, with relating to the uh, discussion at hand on, on carbon management. The, the, the topic of carbon removal and reduction is one that I've been dedicating more and more of my time as chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee on. Back in July, we held a hearing to examine the status and the potential of the technologies needed uh, for large-scale carbon management, uh, such as carbon removal, carbon utilization, and, and carbon storage. We had a pretty strong panel uh, of witnesses, including Julio Friedman of Columbia there, but it was an opportunity to really dive into a whole host of technology options, ranging from direct air capture facilities to enhanced natural processes like carbon mineralization and in bioenergy with carbon capture. Everyone, everyone on that panel who testified agreed that there is both a need and an opportunity to invest in carbon management. Um, I was really impressed, quite, quite honestly, at the diversity of technologies and ideas at our disposal. I think if we start making uh, the right investments today, uh, it's, it's said by the World Resources Institute that the United States could remove up to two gigatons of carbon annually by 2015. That's the equivalent to 30% of our current greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I'm also uh, aware of how immense the scale of the challenge before us is. Um, I believe it was, it was Dr. Friedman who compared it with the oil and gas sector. If we are actually to meet the goal of removing two gigatons from the environment each year, the associated infrastructure to capture, process, transport, and store that carbon would be on the same order of magnitude as our entire oil and gas industry. 
So if, if we want to be able to, to have this technology make a difference, I think we all recognize we've got to begin today. And so that's what we're working on uh, within our committee. Um, but it's also in, in other areas, in the appropriations bills for this fiscal year, we included $60 million for research into carbon removal technologies. This is, this is a record amount of funding for us coming through the appropriations account there. Uh, through the last defense bill, we also enacted legislation led by Senator Whitehouse and Senator Sullivan. They call it the Sea Fuel Act, but it directs the Department of Defense to investigate uh, ocean carbon removal. And uh, of course, we're moving on some other, other legislative uh, measures. My American Energy Innovation Act includes uh, a proposal by Senator Manchin that we call the EFFECT Act, which authorizes R&D programs at Department of Energy to make large-scale carbon management a reality, including some programs for the first time that are focused on, on large-scale uh, carbon removal and utilization. Our energy innovation package um, has, has had some hurdles. Back in February, we were derailed off the process by an unrelated uh, issue that of hydrofluorocarbons. Um, it stopped our progress in March, but um, we continue to push that, push it aggressively. Uh, as of early this morning, we are working on this. I think it would be a, a perfect week to pass it, this being National Clean Energy Week and Climate Week in New York. So we're going to keep pushing on that. Uh, on other related matters, I'm also leading a bill with Senator Whitehouse that we call the Blue Carbon for Our Planet Act. This would assess our opportunities to remove carbon from our atmosphere by sustainably managing coastal carbon ecosystems, as well as the potential to cultivate, cultivate kelp and microalgae as carbon sinks. Uh, coming from a state, and Jason, you, you know my love of, of my state, but I get excited about it because I think there are so many opportunities there, but we have uh, obviously extraordinary coastline, um, uh, extensive oceans around us. So the, the opportunities here uh, as it relates to, to blue carbon um, and, and how we manage, again, our coastal ecosystems is something of, of great interest to me. Uh, one more um, legislative item. This is something that I have introduced recently with Senator Sinema from uh, Arizona. We call it the CREATE Act. It establishes an executive committee at the Office of Science and Technology Policy to coordinate interagency efforts on carbon removal and development, uh, as, as well as the R&D there. So there is a great deal that is going on on the legislative front. Um, my team and I are also assessing additional recommendations from our hearing and policy reports from the National Academies of Science. So I'm, I'm looking to those as possibly a basis for future legislation that we might be able to introduce uh, after the election, maybe maybe as part of a lame duck session. But again, I think the opportunity to just give you a brief update and overview as to the activities that are going on in Congress. We recognize the imperative. Um, uh, we can never do enough quick enough, but I think conversations such as you are hosting this morning are a very, very important part of that dialogue. And I'm, I'm pleased to be able to give you an update. So thank you for the opportunity this morning. Thank you so much, Senator, for these very insightful comments. We're grateful to have you from your busy schedule. That's, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you very much indeed.